Good morning. Thank you for joining us in worship here at East Shore Baptist Church, and thank you to those of you watching online as well. If you've been here before, I have good news for you. We have made it. We have made it to the very last chapter of the book of Hebrews. If you haven't been here, we've been going through the New Testament letter, the book of Hebrews, which is a letter from an author. We're not quite sure who exactly the person was, but he's writing to Hebrew background believers, men and women who practiced Judaism growing up but then came to know Jesus Christ, but they're at a point in their lives where things are hard, they're thinking about drifting away, leaving the faith, and through 12 chapters of this book, the author has been building the case that Jesus is better. You shouldn't leave, you shouldn't go back to what you had before because Jesus is better. And that was the focus of those first 12 chapters, why Jesus is better. The conclusion he built to, we read last week in chapter 12, verse 28, he said, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us be thankful what Christ has done and let us worship him. But if we're Think about that for a minute. Our question is, what exactly does that mean? Well, God wants us to worship Him, acceptable worship. What does that look like? Is that supposed to sing particular songs on Sunday and not others? What does that mean? How do we do that? Well, the author takes the very last chapter of the book, chapter 13, to tell us how. How do we worship God? This conclusion to the book is a series of very specific moral instructions, kind of rapid fire. Here's what it looks like to have a life that worships God. And it also reminds us this is a real letter to real people who had real problems and issues in their lives, and our author is seeking to address that here at the end. Today, we're looking at the first six verses of this chapter, which calls for an all-encompassing holiness, that our entire life is about worshiping God, that all our lives reflect Him and are shaped by our faith in Him. How do we live a holy life, a life that worships God? This chapter will tell us how. Today, the author seems to have a particular focus. He's speaking to these people, and he wants them to turn away from an understanding of life that they had. He wants them to turn away from self-love, thinking about their own interest first, to change their mind, and instead turn toward having a heart for others and love for God, greater trust in Him. And this idea of turning away from self, focusing on others, he's going to do by looking at different contexts and situations. He's going to start really big. He's going to talk about in your church among brothers and sisters, what does it look like to love them? Then he's going to take it close to home. He's saying in your home with the people closest to you, what does it look like to put them first there? And then he's going to end by talking about our minds, our inner thoughts. What does it look like in our minds to make our life not about self-love, but about loving others and serving God? This message he's going to give us today is very countercultural. It goes against what we hear in a lot of the world around us. The world around us values self-love. It encourages you to praise yourself, to always act in your own best interest. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should tear ourselves down, we should think bad thoughts about ourselves, or that we should let other people take advantage of us. I'm not saying that at all. But our text is going to encourage us with the truth that Jesus calls his people to something much better than just self-love and serving ourselves. As I was thinking about this message, my mind turned to one of my favorite books that's not the Bible. It's a little devotional called The Gospel Primer by a man named Milton Vincent. And it's a short kind of 31-day devotional, but one section of it one day specifically addresses this idea of self-love versus love of God. And thinking about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the author says this, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it assures me that the love of God is infinitely superior to any love that I could ever give to myself. And so his astonishing love for me, it renders self-absorption moot. That means it completely gets rid of self-love. It frees me up to move on to causes and interest far greater than myself. I think this is kind of a good summary of where we've been. If you haven't been here, then, then check out a couple of the messages previously because we've spent weeks and weeks talking about who Jesus is, why he is better. And this week, our author's saying, in light of all of that, 
This is how we should live, not thinking about ourselves, but seeking to love others and trust God. And that's our goal today is that by looking at God's word, we will be freed up to move on to causes and interest far greater than ourselves. Now, if you're here, you don't know Jesus, you haven't been following along with this, or you're listening about it, say, well, what's the point of this for me? Well, I hope you'll listen because I hope you'll hear what it looks like for God's people to live for him, what it looks like when God's people's lives reflect their Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that being said, if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Again, we're looking at verses 1 through 6 today. And once you are there, I'd ask you that if you are able, if you would please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in the seat back in front of you. You're welcome to, to take, even take when you leave. Uh, or the words will also be on the screen. So we're in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Verse 5, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that in our human nature, we want to love ourselves, value the things we want, seek after what's best for number one. Oh, but God, I pray that as we reflect on the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, and these instructions that we just heard and we'll talk about in this passage, it would change our focus. May we have a heart for your people, for one another. May we have greater love and affection for you and your desires than for our own desires. I pray, God, that you will produce change in our lives so that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would show hospitality to our fellow believers, that, God, we would have compassion on those who are mistreated. May our love for you change how we think about things like marriage and sex to instead value your desires. And, God, may you work in our hearts and minds so that we may not covet, but be content with what you have brought about in our lives. God, help us to not think about these things as a checklist of things to do, but instead to think about what a life of worship looks like, how you have radically changed us by your Son. I pray, God, that as we talk about these specifics, we would not lose sight of him, our Lord and Savior. Lord, may he increase in our time together. And may everything else decrease so that we can see him clearly. As to him be the honor and glory. It's in his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you're using the outline or the notes I gave you, the, the question in this passage is we just talked about worship. So how do Christians worship God with their lives? That's kind of the big question this chapter is about. And our author will give us five ways, five ways that we can worship God. We can make our lives about Him. So how do Christians worship God with their lives? Well, the first thing they do is they pursue brotherly love. God's people, if they're worshiping Him, they pursue brotherly love. Your blank is love, used in the outline. Verse 1 tells us quite simply, let brotherly love continue or keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, I don't normally do this because I want to speak about how God's word is accessible for everyone, but I did take a moment to look at the original Greek of this and that those two words in English, brotherly love, it's one word in Greek. 
That word is Philadelphia. So that's for you. It's Philadelphia, not Dallas, but Philadelphia is, is, the, is the word that's there. I'm teasing my Dallas Cowboys friend here. The instruction for us is for brotherly love to continue, and this shows up throughout Scripture. In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Believers in Christ are one family. Scripture tells us elsewhere that we've been adopted by God. We're adopted sons and daughters of the one true King. And so what that means is our relationship to one another is that we are brothers and sisters. That means we're called to treat one another with brotherly love. Our relationships, particularly in our church, are to be marked by love. We're to show the same kind of love to one another here that we show to our family members. That's how close our relationships should be. So for believers in Jesus Christ, church is not just the place that you come on Sunday mornings. No, church should be the place where your family is, where you practice brotherly and sisterly love. In fact, Scripture tells us that we cannot faithfully follow God without showing that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the book of 1 John, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, meaning a fellow Christian, not necessarily your biological brother, but someone else following God. If you say, I love God and hate your brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, the person he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him, from God. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, you may hear this and you may say, yeah, of course, Christians love each other. Let's move on to the other ones. There's some more meaty ones down below. But my friends, this is the first one that guides that action. And I think it's important for us to take some time to think about it. Because we live now in an age and, and a time where many people who profess the name of Christ, many churches, denominations, divide and split. And sometimes they divide and split over things that are quite silly. And sometimes they divide and split over things that are important and are worth talking about, but are not at the same level of who Jesus is and who God is. They split over things like politics and preference. They're forgetting this instruction to show brotherly love and affection to one another. The Protestant reformer John Calvin spoke about how this could happen. He said, nothing flows away so easily as love. Nothing flows away, goes out of our lives so quickly as loving one another. Because when everyone thinks of himself more than he ought, well, then he will allow to others less than he ought. But when you think of yourself more, you by nature then think of others less. And then many offenses happen daily which cause separation. You see this journey. If we start thinking about ourselves more and how, how good we are, we try to make our life about what I want and the way I think about the world, well, then we start thinking about other people a little less. And then if we're thinking more about ourselves, we get to a point where we see somebody, that person's doing something wrong. I don't like what that person's doing. I don't like what that person's doing. When our focus is on ourselves, we find offenses and wrongs in others far more easily. Our passage reminds us that brotherly love is the answer to division among God's people. Because love isn't an emotion. It's not just something we feel Love in the Bible is a commitment. It's committing to meet one another's needs, to encourage one another. And that type of commitment takes hard work, but it is so worth it because it honors God. It's worship to Him. And the author, you know, he says in our passage to let brotherly love continue. This is something they're doing. They are loving one another. We read this earlier in the book of Hebrews. Back in chapter 6, the author said to them, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This church, with all their struggles, all their temptation to walk away from Christ, they were showing this love. And God's people today should do the same. And one way in particular they can show that brotherly love is the, the second point the author makes to us, by showing hospitality. One way to pursue brotherly love is to show hospitality. 
Our author says to not neglect, forget, to show hospitality or to entertain strangers. In the words of verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And he gives a reason for it, because thereby some have entertained, they've shown hospitality to angels unawares without knowing it. I like how I heard a sermon from Pastor David Platt preaching on this passage about a year ago, and he summarized this verse this way. He said, what we're to do is love strangers like they're angels. I think that's a good way of kind of putting those words together. Love strangers like they're angels. Here, the author is taking that brotherly love he called for in verse 1, and he's expanding it to those outside the immediate church family. When it says, show hospitality to strangers, he probably particularly has in mind other believers who are not part of the church, but may be traveling through. People like the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary, and how people welcomed him and supported him. That seems to be the kind of hospitality he's calling for. Now, that's a word that we don't often use nowadays, and when we do, we use it in different ways. Uh, there's a, a website that has free images that you're allowed to, to use in PowerPoints and things like that, and I use it for a lot of the pictures here. But when I typed in hospitality, most of the things that showed up were pictures of hotels or, or servers at restaurants. That's what our mind jumps to when we think hospitality. And so when it says here to show hospitality, what does that mean? Does that mean that God is expecting each of us to throw a big party at our house every single week? Is, is that what we're supposed to do? Well, one scholar, Michael Kruger, I liked how he put it. He said, hospitality is not just about hosting dinner parties. It is more other-centered. It, hospitality, focuses on meeting a need rather than having an enjoyable time. The motive is different. When Scripture speaks of hospitality, it's speaking of meeting a particular need of someone. It's not so much having a get-together that everybody has a wonderful time at. No, it's serving another believer with no expectation of receiving anything back. The reason this was important then is because if someone was traveling, they needed somewhere to stay. Travel in the first century, 2,000 years ago, was very different from today. You couldn't stop at a hotel. You certainly couldn't book it online in advance. No, it, if you went somewhere, you had to depend on others to welcome you into your home and take care of you. Travel was difficult and dangerous. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's how they served one another. And the reason our author gives in our passage for doing this is because if you do that, you may be serving an angel, a messenger from God, one of his special created supernatural beings, maybe the person you're serving. The author probably has in mind the Old Testament when several times God's people would be talking to someone and they weren't realizing that they were speaking to an angel. They wouldn't know it right away. The point for us is that if you're showing hospitality, you will never know or may never know the full significance of that action. You may never know what God will do through that action, meeting a need, serving someone. You don't know the impact it could have on the kingdom of God. I'm not going to go into too much detail with specifics, but I know in my own life, some of the most meaningful moments in my Christian life have been around a dinner table with brothers and sisters of Christ, often not at my home, but somewhere else, that they've taken the time to, to serve me and meet a particular need. I wasn't going to put it here, but, but let me give an example. Um, I've, I know I've shared this story before, but uh, I didn't meet my wife until later than many people do. And when I was in seminary, I was just a, a single guy. And uh, one of the most meaningful moments uh, of my time in seminary was a couple, friends of mine, who invited me over to their house on Valentine's Day to just spend the day with them. And that's a small action. They just let somebody in their home, gave them some food. But that was meaningful to me. It showed me that life is not about getting things I want or following particular schedules. They use that time to serve and bless someone else. That was a remarkable moment of change. That was wonderful hospitality shown by that couple. As God's Word says in 1 Peter, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That brotherly love we talked about, since love covers a multitude of sins. You'd say, how do we do that, Peter? How do we love others? Well, 
He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He knows our human nature there. And why do we do that? Verse 10 tells us, because as each has received a gift, we use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He's saying we've been given gifts, blessings from God. We need to use it to serve Him. One way we could do that is by showing hospitality. So what does that mean for us? How do we think about it? Well, it means we may need to think about the gifts God's given us in a slightly different perspective from our American kind of individualistic mindset. In God's economy, His work, the home, the place He's given you to live, it's not a castle, it's not a fortress, it's a tool that God has given you for His glory. It's a place that God has given you, an environment that you can use to serve others. So, but let me speak to some objections about that. Perhaps you say, well, I can't show hospitality, Pastor, because I'm an introvert and I I don't like having other people around. Um, And this may surprise you to know, but I hope you'll trust me that I understand that very much because if if you know me well, I actually am an introvert, or at least I think of myself that way. Maybe that surprises you, seen up here, but uh, just in full transparency, most Sundays, I finish up here, I talk to all of you, I go home, and I typically collapse for a few hours. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I love what I do. I'm very privileged to serve here, but because my personality, uh, interacting with others, it, it, it drains me eventually, and I need time to recover afterwards. That's how I understand introvert there. So what if you're like that? You're like, well, I'm an introverted person. I'm, I, I can't even get up. I can't talk to others, Pastor John, like that. How am I supposed to show hospitality? Well, it, it will take planning. It will take thinking about your personality and what it looks like, how you can do it. It'll mean that you schedule time to serve others, and then you also schedule time to recover from it. Typically, typically for me, I'm served here. I take some time to rest. We have people over. I take a break. But this instruction in Scripture is to show hospitality, to use what God has given you, the home, the place you have, use it to serve others, to meet needs, to encourage people. Remember, that's the focus here, is meeting needs. So yes, that can happen by inviting people over to your home, but perhaps meeting a person's need, that wouldn't be helpful to them. Uh, As someone who's a relatively new parent, I understand fresh how difficult it is sometimes for a family to go somewhere, and it's more often easier to go to them, but maybe you can help with providing a meal, some babysitting, or maybe just being a friend to someone, a listening ear to someone who has a need. Our instruction here is we're going to worship God. One way we do that is by practicing hospitality. And that idea of having that kind of other focus, thinking about their needs, it also positions us well for the third instruction our author gives, which is not only to have hospitality, but to have compassion for those who are mistreated, to have compassion for the mistreated. Have compassion. The author tells us in verse 3 to continue to remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison chained alongside with them. And also, remember those who are being mistreated as if you were mistreated the same way because after all, your body could be suffering the same way. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. You are a human being, too. Believers in Jesus are called to identify with those who are mistreated and those who are suffering, especially if they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember the context of this letter. He's speaking to Christians. They would have been a small, persecuted minority, and there would have been people they knew who were locked up, put in prison, just for being Christians, not for breaking an explicit law, but just because they followed Christ and valued that more than whatever the religion of their area was. And when someone was in prison, particularly in this day, they didn't have a prison system that provided food. No, they were dependent on family and friends to meet their needs. Believers would do that. They would seek to meet the needs and encourage people. Again, this isn't something I have here, but I was doing a little reading on it, and somebody referenced a document that a a Roman uh, government official wrote in the first century. 
And this Roman was not a Christian, but he was complaining in the document about how every time he locked Christians up, those other Christians would just hang out outside. That they'd, they'd want to go in and talk to this person. And it was very annoying to deal with all these Christians hanging around their prisons. Because that's the heart they had. They wanted to serve one another. And again, this is what the people in this church that the author's writing to were doing. Chapter 10 told us that they had compassion on those who were in prison. And if it happened to them, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew where their home is. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Why does the author say this? Why does he say you need to have compassion, care for, remember those who are in prison? Well, because prison is a very dehumanizing place. God's given us a a world, a creation to explore, to live in. Prison keeps you in one location. It tears down a bit of your humanity. And by remembering, encouraging prisoners, we can remind them that they are created in the image of God. So we try to do that through connections at Keystone and other areas, try to encourage those who are prisoners that they are still valuable in God's sight. Well, what about the other side of that in the verse? What about compassion for those who are mistreated? How do we do that? Well, it will take time. We'll be getting to know someone, feeling their pain, and then actively seeking to meet their needs because that's what love looks like. Instead of pulling away from someone who's suffering out of shame or fear of what they're going through, instead, we're to call, we are called to care for those who suffer. Again, especially if they are brothers and sisters in faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul spoke about this. I was uh, reading this past week in the book of 2 Timothy. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Paul was in jail. But instead he tells Timothy, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Whether someone's suffering in the church or they're just our fellow human being, we are called to help. By doing that, we're following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, all three of these points we just talked about, brotherly love, hospitality, remembering, caring for those who are in prison or suffering, Jesus himself talked about this. He told a story to his followers about the final judgment, and he spoke about how God would divide people into two groups and that he would speak to one group of people, and this is what he would say. He would say, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then his followers or those who are there would respond, when did we do that to you, Lord? When did we do all those things you listed there? And he says a couple verses later, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. By showing brotherly love, hospitality, and compassion, we are following Christ. Now the author switches gears. Instead of this kind of broad focus of followers of Christ, he's going to angle close to home. And we also model Jesus in how we use our own bodies and how we treat those who are closest to us. And that is why we should view marriage as valuable. That's the fourth point. View marriage as valuable. Valuable. Now, before dive into looking at this. I want to take a moment to talk about how this is going to happen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the truth. I'm going to look at this verse of Scripture, talk about what it means, what it says. That's what the focus is going to be. And I encourage you to be patient as I work through those implications, because a question, a thought may, may pop into your head, and we're starting with what's here on the page. And so I'd ask you, please don't tune me out immediately if there's something that you hear, something that's said, and that rubs you the wrong way, strikes you the wrong way, because hopefully we'll address that a little later. So we're going to talk about what it says, and then we're going to talk about its impact on our lives. So first, this verse, verse 4, this idea of viewing marriage as valuable, what does this verse mean? 
Well, verse 4, our passage tells us that marriage is to be held in honor among all. It's to be honored and honorable, and the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled or pure. We're to hold marriage as highly valuable, a great worth, a treasure, and remain faithful to our spouse. And I know there's more to the verse, but I just love that, that first half, how our author is focusing here on the positive. He could have started with the second half. He could have said, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, so let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. But I like the order how it shows up here. He's emphasizing the positive. And that positive is because marriage is a good thing. It's a joyful institution that God created. We're told in the Bible that it's a picture of his relationship with us. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and us, his people, those who know him. But on the other hand, the verse also says that God will judge the sexually immoral. Some older translations have fornicators and the adulteress. Sexually immoral there means anyone who engages in any sexual activity outside of marriage, outside of that marriage bond between a husband and a wife. And adulteress would mean someone who's unfaithful to their spouse, who breaks their marriage vow. And something I'll remind you is that this, this letter is 2,000 years old. The sexual immorality is not something new. It's not something that just popped up on the scene in the 20th century. No, in fact, when this letter was written in the Roman world, it was extremely rampant. And the truth our author wants his readers to understand is that any type of sexual activity outside of marriage, he says, deserves God's judgment. And he's not the only one who says this. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and then he goes on with more, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you might hear that, you might think, well, that sounds really harsh and really restrictive. Why would God keep sex just there in marriage? Why is, is he so uh, prudish, I guess is the word that, that comes to mind about that? Well, as I was studying about this, thinking about this, I actually, a couple months ago, came across an article by a Christian scholar named Rob Lister, and he, very interestingly, compared sex to the Lord's Supper. I'd say, well, those don't sound similar at all, Pastor John, but, but his argument here is that the Lord's Supper is a symbol, a sign of a covenant. It's a sign of our relationship with God. It's something we participate in regularly, renewing, reaffirming the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. His argument is that sex, then, is a sign of our marriage covenant, our agreement before God with another person that we have made. Here's what he says. He says, in God's economy, we do not celebrate the sign of the covenant where the reality of the covenant isn't received. So those who do not trust in the gospel provision of Jesus ought not celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Similarly, in the same way, we are not to partake in the sign of sex where the covenant of marriage does not exist. I thought that was a really interesting comparison there. He's saying, if you're not a believer, you shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper. And that means if you're not married, you shouldn't be participating in sexual activity. Why? Well, he goes on to say, because sex points beyond itself. It is no mere uniting of bodies. No, it symbolizes and sings of the total and holistic union of the married couple's lives. What, what does that mean? What is he trying to say? What he's trying to say is that sex is celebrating, renewing a covenant with God. It's not about chasing our own pleasure. I talked a little bit about this two weeks ago when we were in the middle of chapter 12. What a life-changing realization that was for me to really grasp that. That sex isn't about me, what I want, what makes me feel good. No, sex is about loving my spouse. It's about worshiping God. And understanding that kills sexual immorality. 
because you realize that to experience sexual pleasure without a spouse is to choose yourself over God. So what does this verse mean for us? That we are to hold marriage in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What, what in the world does that mean? How do we apply it? I talked about it. What does that look like in our lives? Well, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, then that's a warning for us. It's a warning that believers who persist in sexual sin, they cast doubt on their testimony, their story that God has saved them. They may experience disciplinary judgment from God. Continuing in that sin may be a sign that they're not actually real believers because honoring God sexually is how we maintain intimacy with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. For believers, our goal should be to have these pure marriages for an important reason. One scholar, George Guthrie, puts it this way. He says of Christians that our healthy marriages trumpet the redemption of people from self-centeredness and destructive, immoral life patterns. It means we can be redeemed, saved. And don't press this image too far. He's using it as a picture, but he says the bed becomes a mini church in which two covenant members they sacrificially, they don't make it about themselves, but about one another. They ecstatically, there is joy. They meet one another's needs. They offer their bodies as living sacrifices in worship before God. And Guthrie goes on to say, we should remind the world that God created the wonder and fireworks of sex long before the advent of the glossy counterfeit sex sellers of our modern culture should be something to be celebrated, not t torn down. Now, pursuing that takes thought and effort, but again, it is worth it to show the world what Jesus is like. That's the application he's driving at, but I, I want to kind of step aside from what's there to just speak to someone, those who may be here or perhaps someone watching, and you may wonder, but what about if I've done that? What about if I've practiced sexual immorality, either now or sometime in my past? What if I, I've had sex outside of marriage? Or what if I spend time looking at pornography? Or what if I've committed adultery? What does that mean for me? Well, let me tell you, that does not mean that you are worthless. It doesn't mean that you should be cast aside and forgotten. We just talked about in verse 3 about prisoners, those who are locked up and some people deny their humanity. Well, in the same way, your sin does not deny your humanity. It doesn't make you less than human. And if there's followers of Christ, those who really love Jesus, they shouldn't make you feel less than human or worthless because you have sinned. If you remember, we looked at a passage just a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Um, and we looked there, talked about the unrighteous not inheriting the kingdom of God. It gave a list, and it said that none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But there's a verse after that. The very next verse, immediately after that, says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Our author is telling us that sexual sin is very serious, but this passage reminds us that there is grace to be found in Jesus Christ. There is hope of forgiveness to be found in Him. Our call is to turn away from sin, reject that, repent, turn from it, and trust, rely more in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we haven't done so, to turn from sin and come to Him for salvation. And that leads then from this thinking about others, to then what's going on in our own heads. For this very last instruction on Christian living, our author is going to focus on our minds. So we started with loving other people, talked about this other person, what does that look like, and now he's going to go inside our heads and encourage us to learn contentment, to learn contentment. He tells us in verse 5 to keep our lives, our character free from the love of money and covetousness and to instead be content or satisfied with what we have. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. 
it's really funny that this kind of comes just after this verse talking about how we should think about sex and sexual activity. Because he's saying here, while we're told to hold tightly the value of marriage, honor it, lift it up, he says we should hold loosely our money, our possessions, the things that God has given us. And again, this is kind of the opposite message from what the world tells us. The world tells us that sex isn't that serious. Do whatever you want. Be loose with it. It's okay. Whatever makes you feel good, that's what you should do. But money, oh, money's important. You need money. You need to make sure you have a lot of it because you need bigger and better things. And it's so interesting here. God says the exact opposite of that. Flips it on and says, no, hold marriage in honor and valuable. Keep that pure. Money, use as God wills. Be content with what you have. It's not that money is evil. It's a tool. It's so interesting how all these tie together. We talked earlier about showing hospitality, using our home as a tool. Well, money's the same. It's a tool that we use to honor God. But the love of money, passion for it, well, that can lead to destruction. In his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And he says it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So there's an eternal consequence, wandering away, but it's not just that eternal. One scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, he focuses on that word pangs, and, and, which means just suffering. And this, he said the chief pang which pierces the heart of the lover of money, is gnawing anxiety. If money's our main goal, then we'll always be anxious about it, worried about it. And he notes, though, the greedy man can never be a happy man. And look, I'm not blind. I read the news, look around. We, we live in a time of great inflation. Uh, I just got gas yesterday. It was not fun to look at the, the bill from there. But if our mind is about loving money, then that just kind of builds that constant anxiety as we watch the numbers go up on the gas pump every time we fill, or whatever it is. And that anxiety, that worrying about it, can very easily turn to coveting, desiring what someone else has. And when we do that, when we covet, we desire, we want what someone else has, that's showing we're not trusting God to provide for us. Loving money, coveting, that is the opposite of trusting God. Jesus spoke about this. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? So how do we defeat this anxiety, this love of money? Our author tells us, by contentment, by satisfaction with what? We have by knowing the truth and I, one of the authors referenced this great quote from the, the apologist the christian author c.s lewis um, this was I, I, this is a quote worth thinking about for a while c.s lewis wrote that he who has god and everything has no more than he who has god alone if you know god and you have everything there is in the world you're a president, billionaire, you have everything you could possibly want. You have no more than if you just know God and have nothing else in this world. From the perspective of eternity, they are exactly the same. Now, you can look at that, and I'm not suggesting that you do something reckless or foolish. I'm not saying you empty your bank account and just start handing bills out on the street or something like that. I'm not saying that, but I am saying we need to be intelligent in thinking about God's provision. Use the resources God has given us wisely, but trust in God, not in money. Our source of contentment should be God's presence with us, that he is with us, that we know him. And we know that God is with us because he says so in his inspired perfect word here. The author, in verse 5, he quotes from the Old Testament to prove this. He says, he, God, has said, I will never leave, desert, or fail you. I will never forsake or abandon you. 
This is a quote that pops up multiple times in the Old Testament. Pops up at least once in Joshua, at least twice in the book of Deuteronomy. It's teaching us that God is with us. As Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, there's nothing you can want, there's nothing you can ask for, there's nothing you can need in time or eternity, there's nothing living, nothing dying, there's nothing in this world, nothing in the next world, nothing now, nothing at the resurrection morning, nothing in heaven which is not contained in this text. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a longer version of what C.S. Lewis did. He took that and condensed it, saying that God, if we know God, that is all we need. He is all we need. So what does this look like for our lives? If we're going to apply this to our lives, if we're going to think about this, what does it look like as it impacts us? Then we need to ask ourselves a question. It's a question that I heard David Platt say in his sermon, and so it's one I'm going to ask you and all of us as well. Is the presence of God with me enough for me? Is the fact that I know God and He is with me, is that enough? Or is there something else I think I want in my life? Because if there is a something else, then we're not going to find that contentment. And that something else is going to push us away from the Lord. But if God is enough, well, verse 6 is going to add to this argument to prove it even more. Verse 6 also quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118, verse 6, and tells us we can confidently trust God to meet our needs. As verse 6 says, if God will never leave us and forsake us, that's verse 5, verse 6 says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If God's never going to leave us, then I don't need to be afraid of what any person could do to me. I don't need to be afraid of a mere human being because I know the God who controls all people and all things. The God who rises up nations and brings down nations. The God who raises up people and, and lowers people, raises up leaders and removes them, who affects what happens to me today, tomorrow, and the next day, and forever. As the psalmist said in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When life is hard, we can trust God, develop confidence in Him. If we know God, then we can go through life with our heads held high. Not because we think we're superior or better. No, but because we know the one who is in control. We know the one who we can trust and rely on. In Isaiah, we read, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It's I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. That's such a, a beautiful image, I think, of, of just, just God holding our hand and taking us where he would have us to go. Now, none of this means that this is easy. None of this means it comes naturally. You notice the point I put on your outline was to learn contentment. It's not just you flip a switch and all of a sudden you're there. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in the book of Philippians. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's learned. He's figured this out. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's something we have to be learned. There's a secret we have to discover. Well, don't leave us in suspense, Paul. Tell us, what is this secret that helps us be content? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes that verse is used as, you know, I can lift 500 pounds in this weightlifting contest because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not what it's about. It's here talking about contentment. If we're going to be content when life is difficult, if we're going to trust in God, when the world wants us to worry about so many things, we can do that because we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to follow God. It looks and worship Him. It's showing brotherly love to one another. It's showing hospitality. It's having compassion for those who are mistreated. It's holding marriage high and, and impurity. It's having contentment when things are hard. And I realize that's, that's a lot altogether. Honestly, each of these 
six verses here. It could be its own sermon. It's worth reflecting more on what's here. But what I don't want us to miss is what the key is in this. The key to understanding and grasping this, to making this a part of our lives, is by knowing and dwelling on our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if we don't know him, this is just a checklist of, okay, I have to make sure I show love, make sure I have somebody over to my house each week, make sure I I call somebody in prison, make sure I'm not doing sex wrong, and then also make sure I'm content, whatever that means in my mind, and then I'm good, then I'm worshiping God. No, no, the way we get there is by dwelling on who Christ is, because that changes our heart and desire. I began with a quote from uh, Milton Vincent in the Gospel Primer, and this is where he wraps up that section. He says, the more I behold God's glory in the gospel, the good news that Jesus came, he lived, he died to pay for our sin and restore us to God, the more I think about that, well, the more lovely he appears. And the more lovely that he, God, in Christ appears, well, the more that self, the more I fade into the background, like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. When we're born, we are in love with ourselves. We want what what we want, and we want to please ourselves. But if our focus is on God, His glory, what Christ has done for us, then we become an ex, a former love interest, that we push aside to instead worship Him and serve others. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is better than self-love. And maybe you don't know him. Well, I encourage you to turn to him. Discover for yourself how much better he is than just chasing after what you want and your own desires. Because he is so much better and so much sweeter. If you haven't, then please turn from sin and embrace him. I'd encourage you to talk to me or talk to, to somebody about how you can know Jesus. Turn away from whatever sin may be in the past and know this kind of confidence and hope in him that we talked about today. But if you have done that, you say, I I do know Jesus. I do have a relationship with him. Well, friends, then just read these six verses. This is how we are to live. We are to show brotherly love. We're to show hospitality. We're to have compassion on those who are mistreated. We're to view marriage as valuable and worthy of purity. And instead of being anxious or afraid, we're to learn contentment. Why? Because our Savior, Jesus Christ, alone is worthy of that kind of life.